BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Well, it's time in the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, August 28th, and the headline in the New York Times tells it all. Trump bolstered by party he's transformed, emphasizing nationalist themes. He goes into election looking to shift narrative. Uh, this is the headlines uh, in the paper that follows the culmination of the Republican convention, a sickening display, in my humble opinion, of everything that's wrong in our country right now. I'm a transformer. Uh, <laughs> made even more frightening by the prospect that it may actually work and hand Donald Trump an electoral college victory. Let me remind everybody, there's no way in the world that he'll ever win a real election uh, because the majority of the country, happy to say, is too sane to reelect uh, Donald Trump. Those views and opinions are those of Ben Jarofsky do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the guest who's waiting on deck to give his views and opinions. So as we do with all bonus shows, I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Go ahead, distinguished guest. Well, Ben, it's great to be here again. Uh, my name is David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University and uh, columnist of the week. And I'm the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And more recently, The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And uh, I can't wait to talk about that absolute disgusting mess that we just saw unfold over the last four days. All right. I guess <laughs> I guess you see eye to eye in that. Uh, David was on the show. He comes on the show regularly. He was on the show last Tuesday. We're talking about the Democratic Convention. We broke that down. Uh, now let's break down the Republican Convention. So we'll start with just the general thoughts. Uh, you, for the good of the team, you took one for the team, David. You, <laughs> you watched, you told me you watched pretty much every single significant speech uh, that the Republicans offered. Uh, I I'm tripling your salary uh, for having done that for the good of the team. So consider your salary tripled. Uh, I will Venmo you the tripled salary uh, as soon as we're done with the show. Uh, I'm going to pay off my mortgage right now. So, uh, <laughs> Well, you're, yeah, uh, salary in the Ben Jarofsky show could probably do that. We pay our guests so much money. All right. Um, general thoughts about what went down. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a I'm a party guy, you know, I'm a progressive, so the whole thing was just a, an ugly, disgusting spectacle to me. Um, and but I do think it's like if you're going to break it down, um, what I would say is that there were two conventions. Okay, uh, there were two Republican conventions, and they they unfolded it at basically the same time. Um, one of those conventions was like full of like normal seeming Republicans, like Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and. Um, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, there was an effort to highlight um, the voices of black Republicans and, uh, and Latino Republicans and things like that. And those folks, for the most part, gave speeches that, like, if you watched it with the sound off, you'd be like, okay, you know, these people are normal, this is fine. 
Um, and then there were like hours and hours and hours of just like coke addled lunatics like screaming at your TV. Um, that instances that they clearly like never rehearsed or thought about. Like, did nobody teach Kimberly Guilfoyle about the inside voice and the outside voice? Like, um, and so it's just like uh, the theme of the Trump administration going back to his campaign is like the like the lack of understanding that the crazy stuff, like the super duper crazy stuff, tends to overshadow the, the normal stuff, you know. Um, and so the indelible sort of like lasting um, remembrances that people will have of the RNC are like you know the pre- the president's like dumbest son's dumb girlfriend um screaming into the camera uh, about radical democrats the radical democrat part you know it's like uh you know donald trump jr's like the cocaine eyes and uh you know all of the stupid trumps that they trotted out there every night um it was just like um you know you could tune in for a little while and hear republicans that you 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 might have expected to be there like 15 or 20 years ago. Um, people who, you know, I don't like them and their policies are terrible, but they might not be like awful people. Um, and But there's so many awful people at this convention and they were the most memorable parts of it. Um, and that's what people are gonna remember. That's what drives the press coverage. Um, you know, it's like, what, you know, who, who in their right mind invites Rudy Giuliani to give like the last speech before Trump, you know? Um, and so, I just was like shocked by the, I really, I mean, it's like, I've, I've still not lost my capacity for shock with these people. Um, but I was shocked that there was like so little effort to make this seem normal and to project a sense of calm and normalcy. And instead it was just like um, this like orgy of like fear and like, you know, dog whistles and like violent imagery um, being given to us by the, um, by the speakers and like no real effort um, to project the sense of national unity, to tell people in the Democrat cities and the Democrat states that we're like all in this together, suffering together. And it was just like, honestly, like, you know, really a hyper-partisan spectacle, you know, where it's like just nonstop attacks on Democrats, Democrat cities, Democrat states, the radical Democrats, you know, um, just like such a stark contrast to the DNC. Um, And so I'm not the audience for this thing. Um, I hated it, you know, I hated it. Every minute that I had to listen to these speeches, um, and uh, but I think even you know putting on my my objective hat, um, I thought there were things that could have been effective had they been um, more front and center, and had they made a choice um, to, to conduct a, a more calm and sort of like rational proceedings. But they didn't they didn't do that, and I don't think it's going to help them. To be honest with you. All right, we'll get to that. Will it help them? Uh, and let me just start by saying, I'm going to be quoting you to you. I do it every time you're on the show because uh, you really did open my eyes to it. Uh, this orgy of fear and dog whistles, uh, this utter indifference to the point of hostility of projecting national unity is a byproduct of our system of electing the president where they've concluded that they do not need a majority of the voters. They realize they won't get a majority of the voters and all they need to do is scare enough people in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania to go their way, enough white people, I should say, and they uh, will take the, the presidency by virtue of the electoral college. So that's I, it wouldn't be a David Ferris interview if I didn't say that. I will say that every time you're on the show, because I, 
I believe that drum cannot be pounded enough, David, that our part of the reason that the, Donald Trump is free to be insane is because our system of government, our system of electing a president enables him to be that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is a super important point because I think that when you, when you, when you go back and you watch the DNC and then you watch the RNC, um, it's, it's extremely clear that one of these teams understands um, that they need to get over 50% of the vote. Uh, and for Democrats, they, you know, I think that they think they need to get significantly more than 50% of the vote to win and become president. Um, and so they make this like, uh, they make this appeal to, to, to former Republicans and people who are independents who may lean Republican but are disgusted by the president's behavior. And they projected this sense of like um, national unity and, uh, and, and calm stewardship of, of the economy and the country. Um, and then on the other hand, you have Republicans who um, have it's like the electoral college advantage that they think that they have has become embedded in their governing philosophy. It's become embedded in the way that they speak about um, areas of the country that are controlled by, by the Democratic Party and its allies. Um, it's, it's infected the way that they think about um, their responsibilities to us or, or lack thereof. Um, I'm, I'm speaking specifically as like an Illinois you know, as a Chicagoan, knowing that the government doesn't care about us. The government doesn't, you know, like the, the Trump administration does not think that it ever needs anybody to vote for them in Illinois, even though, of course, you know, there are like millions of Republicans in Illinois. There are like more Republicans in Illinois than there are in Alabama. Um, but they don't care, right? Like to them, it's all about, um, it's all about getting back into office. They don't care if they win with a majority. I almost get the sense that they'd rather not. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like that they would rather just like triple down on the on the forty five percent of the country that supports them, um, and 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 like I think that he would be like weirdly proud of of, of losing the popular vote by by five points and still becoming president. Um, I don't think that's actually going to happen. We can get into that later. Um, but it is it's really striking, um, really like the absence of appeal. Um, to, to people who support Democrats or live in cities, you know, it's, it's all about the fear, you know, like um, your, your city's being run into the ground by the violent anarchists. There was a lot of similar coded language being used throughout the convention. Um, that's like deliberately alienating for, for people like us. Um, and again, it's like, um, you know, like parties are important, right? And partisanship is important. I don't actually think partisanship is necessarily a negative thing. Um, but there's a way. There's a way that you can get carried away with it that um, I think is really corrosive to not just our democracy, but it's uh, you know honestly, it's like so corrosive to our sense of, of, of sort of civic commonality. You know, like how can you how can you watch the RNC and think to yourself like um, these are people that I'd be happy like I'm happy to share a country with these people. You know, um, I watch the RNC and I'm like you know. These people want to kill us, man. Like they're, they're, you know, like these people are like that that lunatic, you know, the seventeen year old who went up and shot people in Kenosha. Like that's the vibe. Like that's the really strong vibe the RNC gave up. Was like a bunch of like angry white nationalists um, who, who who actually really wished to do you harm. Um, and then they're like, here's Tim Scott, um, you know, uh, who who's not there to appeal to black voters, right? He's he's there to give white voters a permission structure to vote for this ticket. Um, it's, it's like white voters were like, these guys might kind of look a little bit racist, you know? Um, and then, and then like, here's Tim Scott and, and like Jerron Smith and, and Daniel Cameron. Uh, we're not racist, right? Like don't, you know, watch Tim Scott's speech. 
but then turn the TV off so you don't hear the McCloskeys. You know what I mean? So it's like there was such a tension at the heart of that convention of like um, using the like eight black Republicans in the, in the National Party as a, as a way to cover up um, for everything else that was going on there. It was like it was really sick. Yeah, uh, you, you you skipped ahead to where I was going to go, and I'll say it. Uh, I've been saying this all week. It was despicable that they gave that slot to the McCloskeys, uh, who, of course, are the uh, couple from St. Louis who wave rifle their uh, weaponry at uh, protesters who are completely peaceful, weren't even on their property. And Kyle Rittenhouse is next. I've been saying it all uh, week. The, the, the 17-year-old who killed the two people in Kenosha, you watch, uh, David, it's going to happen. The, the, um, the extreme element of the Republican Party will become more and more the centerpiece of the Republican Party. So QAnon is now an accepted member of the Republican Party. The McCaskies are welcomed, uh, given a speaking role at the the convention. And now there's like a growing movement on Twitter uh, and social media on behalf of Kyle Rittenhouse, the, who killed two people in Kenosha. And I predict Donald Trump will tweet out some support to him or retweet a tweet that supports him. And this will be a, a this will be a, a moment that the United States, the citizens of the United States are going to have to confront no matter how far to insanity are they willing to go. You get what I'm saying, David? How far are they going to leave what we all consider as like normal political behavior, conventional political behavior? How far will they go? There's no limit. There's no bottom. I mean, it's like this is what we've discovered over the last four years. There is no bottom to any of this. They keep finding like new sub basements of, of ways to disgrace themselves in our country. Um, and the, the elevation of this uh, this homicidal maniac, uh, 17-year-old, into some kind of cult hero, which happened overnight on right-wing media. You know, Tucker Carlson wasn't like 48 hours before Tucker Carlson was like, how can you blame him? You know, and Ann Coulter is out there like, I want him to be the president. And it's like the difference between now and 20 years, these people were always there, right? Like they were always part of the Republican coalition. Um, they may have even been the most important part of the Republican coalition. But they kept the, like, you know, they kept the crazy people in the basement. Um, and, and what Trump has done is he's like, you know, he's brought Ann Coulter, people like Ann Coulter, um, front and center in the party, people like Michelle Malkin, people like open racists, um, who like go on Twitter and it's clear that they have this like bloodthirst, um, to, to see, to see minorities in this country, you know, gunned down in the streets and things like that. Um, and he's, he's normalized. It's one of the things that really was most concerning to me about his election, um, was the way that he was like heedlessly elevating um, the sort of the, like the worst people in the country into positions of rhetorical uh, authority and, and, and sort of opinion making power. Um, and that, that was like, you know, that's like, what were the McCloskey's doing at this convention? You know, it's like, there's two, there's two pieces of it, right? Like one piece is, um, you know, these, these are two just like diseased people. Um, who are have just been, have been charged with a felony? Like people, like the first thing that they did at the RNC was they brought two future felons on yeah. to a destination, right? Um, and it's like, whoa, okay. Um, and so it's like it's just bad politics, right? Because like you, you turn on your TV and you're like, I wonder what, what the Republicans have to say. And it's like these two like random like rich white people in their mansion. They're personal injury, injury attorneys, by the way, right? Like this doesn't make any sense. Um, these two like rich white. Uh, jerks in their in their mansion 
um, talking about the the radical left, and it becomes clear to you after like four minutes if you you know if you're not on Twitter, you're like, okay, so these people are famous because of something that blew up on Twitter. Like that's why that's why they're talking to us. Um, so it's bad politics, but it's also you know um, it gave me this like um, almost like split consciousness where I was like, this is like this is a terrible set of decisions politically for the Republican Party in November. At the same time as I think it's like. I felt worse watching the RNC about the future of the country than I've, than I felt in some time. Um, because it's like so many millions of people watch this and they're like, you know, that's, this is great, man. Give me the gun nuts and, and, and the kid who like yelled at the native American and, um, and Rudy Giuliani and, and all of, uh, all of these dynastic idiots who, who are only speaking at the RNC because the president, you know, sired them. So, So, I don't know. You know, I don't know what to say, um, but it was gross. <laughs> David, speaking about uh, people that the president has literally sired, uh, you made reference to the speeches of his children. And moving aside from the hideousness, the ugliest ugliness, the racism of the convention itself, that was one of the more bizarre things. And I just would love to hear you riff on this a bit. The compulsion that he felt to trot out his children and give them those prime time sl- slots and then give uh, his uh, b- baby Donnie's uh, girlfriend a prime slot. And, and the guy, ironically, who of all the children and of the uh, wives or husbands, spouses of children who had the most clout, did not get a speaking part. That would be Jared Kushner, who's like, I don't know, he's sort of like running the whole thing, it seems like. So just help me out here. What was that all about? Was that just the, the ego of Donald Trump? Uh, where Did they have, are they is he trying to promote his brand in politics with this, like they're the next Bush family or the Kennedys? What the heck was going on there? Well, I mean... <laughs> If they want to turn themselves into the Kennedys, uh, it didn't go well. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, because um, his children are idiots and uh, their spouses are even worse. Um, I, I find this ex- like inexplicable because, um, you know, y- you have a president who's, who's like pretty unpopular, right? Like, I, I don't know what his approval rating is right now, but the average is about 42%. Um and his children are even probably less popular than he is. You know, um, I think that there's like a general climate of hostility to like hereditary nepotism in this country, even though like when push comes to shove, uh, a lot of people still are fine with it. Uh, otherwise, Joe Kennedy would not be polling at 42% against Ed Markey in Massachusetts. That's a story for another day. Um, the why these like B-list Kennedys keep, keep getting elected to office is, is really something. Um, but uh, the fact that they had a Trump out there every single night, you know, like Trump did his like free association thing himself on Monday. Um, he, had, he had his children and he had his children's spouses and girlfriends speaking, which was like, um, I, don't, I, I can't even explain it in like a, in a political sense, other than that they believe that they have like taken over the Republican Party um, and that Trumpism and like the Trump family and the Trump corporation are now sort of synonymous with the Republican brand and that's what they want. You know, like they want you to look at the screen and think like, when I vote Republican, I'm voting not just for this Trump, but for like all of these Trumps um, to continue to have power. You know, you saw the pictures of Eric Trump in the FEMA briefing yesterday um, and everybody was like, well, what is he doing at this, you know, why is he here? He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a job. 
in government? Like, why is the president's idiot son? Yeah. And so, like, you know, Lara Trump <laughs> is speaking, Kimberly Guilfoyle is speaking, Ivanka is speaking, Tiffany is speaking. There were so many Trumps uh, and, like, Trump-adjacent people who have nothing to show for their lives other than being born into this family. Um, and I thought it was a disaster, you know? Um, and, like, you can, you can, like, rank order the disasters. You know, like, obviously, Kimberly Guilfoyle was <laughs> the worst disaster of all of them. Her speech was, like... I assume the speech was like the breakup email that she never sent to Gavin Newsom or something, or like she like I think that she learned to hate Democrats by being, you know, but but like with it not working out with California's future governor. Um, but uh, you know, like Don Jr.'s speech was like unhinged and like you know he seemed crazy, like he was on something. It's a lot of talk on Twitter about what drugs he was on. I don't even know if he was on drugs, but just him, right? Like he's just an idiot who like craves his father's love and attention. He will never get it because his, his father um, is a sociopath who cannot feel joy or love for anyone. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and it, it all went all the way to Ivanka's speech um, uh, last night, right, which was um, so boring and, like, so sort of, like, um, <laughs> she thinks she's funny and she's not funny. She thinks she's interesting and she's not interesting. Um, and uh, I just thought it felt it, this like all felt really flat. Like I could not point to any speech by any of the children or um, you know the people who have made the terrible decision to be with them for their lives. <laughs> I cannot think of I, I can't like go through any of those speeches and think of like a single positive thing that any of that added to the Republican National Convention. Right? Like all if you're a fence sitter and you're like I don't know who to vote for, um, and you see the president putting all of his like idiot children and their girlfriends. Like, <laughs> Um, yeah. I just don't. I don't understand how that helps any. Like, I don't understand how that helps the Republican Party win the election in November. Like, what it does is it helps the president of the United States um, believe the like preposterous set of fictions that he's told himself that these are people who are like qualified to hold office um, and give him advice, uh, and that by putting them on stage, it like retroactively validates his decision to give like a portfolio to Ivanka Trump and like an office in the White House to Ivanka Trump. Um, and, and to like give his stupid children important decision making and advice giving authority in his administration, and I think if he had not put those children on the stage, in his mind, right, like that means that he's like hiding them or something, or that they're not, you know, that they shouldn't be in the positions that they're in. And of course, they shouldn't be in the positions that they're in, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we don't like. Can you imagine if if like Joe Biden gave like a really prominent speaking spot to Hunter? Um, and, and Hunter's wife, and you know, it just it wouldn't have, it would have seemed so discordant, like not because Hunter Biden is disgraced, which he kind of is, but like um, because it's like this is not who we want to hear from, you know, like we don't want to hear from your kids, man, you know, maybe one of them to humanize you, but his kids don't humanize him, right? They're like um, completely bereft of any stories from from the entire arc of Donald Trump's life and their experience with it. They are completely bereft of any story of Donald Trump like being a human being to them. Like they have no stories of their their childhood. They have no stories of him being like a nice dad to them, um, because he, because he's not a nice dad. Right? He is a, a, like a joyless, humorless, uh, a, a, like rage filled maniac um, who doesn't care about his kids. Who I you know like continued having his own children like after his kids started having kids. Right, which is crazy. Um, and so that that aspect of it was just like. Uh, you know, that was like the clearest thing in the whole thing where it was like Trump ran this show, you know, like nobody else 
had any decision-making authority, authority about which, which speakers appeared at this convention. Um, and I thought it was just like a huge, huge problem for the RNC, frankly. Yeah, I, uh, you mentioned something else uh, that I took note on. Uh, you were talking about the, uh, the quote-unquote normal Republicans, uh, and you, you mentioned Tim Scott. And if you you said uh, if you listen to them with the sound off, they look normal. What did you mean by if you listen? Like, <laughs> what did you mean by that? Break that down a little bit. Why does the sound have to be off uh, to have them uh, have appearance of normalcy? Well, because with the sound on, you, you hear what they're saying, right? And they were all kind of like broad marched out there to make the same like ridiculous attacks um, on on the Democrats that everybody else is making, maybe in, in like slightly softer tones. Um, but I'm thinking of somebody like, um, I don't know if you watched this one, but Jeanette Nunez, who's the, um, the Lieutenant governor of Florida, who's a Latina. She's like, you know, in theory, like a very appealing politician for the Republican party, because it's, these are the kinds of people that they need. Um, but, but, but the actual speech that she gave, um, really leaned into like the, the sort of like Cuban American Republican hostility to Democrats. Right. And it was about the radical left and the, you know, um, which was a which was a theme that like ran through the whole four days um, about how how Democrats are you know Joe Biden is like in hock to the to the radical socialist Democratic left. I actually think a lot of the scripts the RNC was written in like February when they thought that Bernie was going to be somebody. Yeah, um, and they were like Venezuela, like we don't want to turn into Venezuela, and it's like like nobody who has like spent more than a minute on Earth in the last like fifty years thinks that Joe Biden um, is going to turn us into Venezuela, right? Like. Radical socialist Joe Biden. Um, It's it's two things, right? It's like it's so preposterous because Joe Biden is like so far from a socialist um, that that you know, like they're not even in the same state. Um, But it's but it's also um, it's just it it proves the point that I feel like a lot of progressives made when the primaries were being fought, where where we were like, look, uh, yeah, sure, they're going to go after Bernie with this stuff, right? Like we know that, uh, but they're going to hit him with the you know. The, the Soviet Union honeymoon and like yeah. the radical leftist and AOC. But like all of us were saying, uh, all of us on the left were saying like, they're going to hit anybody with this, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't matter who the nominee is. The RNC is going to call them a radical socialist, you know, leftist who wants to dismantle the family and destroy the suburbs and all this other crap. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, even in, in, in Tim Scott's speech, he's like, he's going after Biden on the crime bill. Um, and, it's such a it's such a fundamentally incoherent attack because you have Tim Scott being like uh, Joe Biden wrote this like terrible crime bill in '94, um, when and then you have the president releasing his second term agenda, which is law and order, more police, right, um, more cops on the streets, like more money for law enforcement, more money for cops, and so you have simultaneously the party um, sort of like I, I don't know I really don't know what they're doing exactly, but they're trying to hit Joe Biden on criminal justice from the left while simultaneously running like a, like a clan rally from, from the right, you know? Oh, I, uh, I know what they're doing. Uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you what they're doing. Yes, you're right. It's completely inconsistent. Uh, it's completely contradictory. You're absolutely correct. The, the Republican party has a, a general strategy when it comes to black voters. Uh, and that strategy is, uh, to demonize them, just that'll fire up their base, uh, and uh, also keep them from voting, suppression, 
And then the third wave, which seemed to work in 2016, is to use nihilism uh, as a tool to keep voters, black voters from turning out like, yeah, there is no difference between uh, the Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, Joe Biden was for the, the crime bill. So really what, you know, why bother? And so the whole point is to keep black. They know, no, they didn't get 2% of the black vote last time. That's my, I don't care what the exit polls say. Uh, that's an argument I have all the time with various guests in the show. So the next, I know, I know the arguments I keep possessing, because I'll tell you, have I ever had this argument with you, David? I don't know yeah, if I have. Yeah. This will be fun. Yeah. Well, I'll go. Okay. My argument is exit polls and uh, just general polls of black people are in this country when it comes to black voters are have been inaccurate. This is something I've noticed since 2004 with George Bush in the second election. Uh, I, I feel black voters lie to pollsters on this matter, uh, and um, they'll declare a support for Republican uh, in many cases. I don't know why. Maybe they just don't want to be look like they're just normal. You know, I'm going to be different. I'm not for the Democrat. Uh, and then either they change their mind when they go to the polls or they don't vote. So I believe that the people who said they voted for Trump actually didn't vote. You know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. and then when I take the reason I say this, when I look at actual precincts where black people live, and I do this all the time, I send the precinct people argue with me. I send them the results. Oh yeah, look at this. Look at the eighth ward, precinct nine or whatever. And it's like ninety-seven, ninety-eight percent for whoever carry Obama, Clinton. They're not voting for the, you know why? They're logical voters. They're like me. They're like a lefty. Why would any lefty vote for a Republican? Yeah. So why would a logical black person in America today vote for a member of the Republican Party? Uh, right? Well, it's highly unusual, you know? I mean, uh, and there's, uh, there's a, there was a great book on this that came out earlier this year called uh, Steadfast Democrats. Um, and it's, it's about, um, you know, what, uh, what drives sort of the vote choices for, for black Americans. And it's a, um, a lot of it is an argument about like, uh, how like social pressure and sort of like norm maintenance in, in black communities, uh, successfully convinces like conservative black voters to vote for Democrats, even like in a world where like if the Republican party wasn't like super duper racist, um, I actually think, you know, like Republicans could probably get like the same percentage of the black vote that they get of the Latino vote if they just weren't such, just like crazy racists. Um, but they, you know, like, like 25, 30%, right? Um, but they can't get it because the racism and the concern for the black community for like nine out of 10 black Americans outweighs, uh, you know, maybe they're more conservative on uh, abortion or, or, or taxes or, or whatever, right? Um, it's not a monolithic community by, by any stretch of the imagination. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, um, the exit polls are also, you know, sort of notoriously skewed towards college educated people. Um, and the, like a lot of the people who walk out of the, uh, of the voting places just won't talk to the exit pollsters or they won't take their questions. So, um, in political science, we, it's a, it's a great source of data for us, but we also are, 
we take those numbers with a grain of salt because we yeah. know that they're not 100% representative of the country. Um, and oftentimes you'll see the, the exit polls reported on election day and then other groups or like Pew or somebody will go back and do some more careful studies about like, uh, they'll, they'll try to validate voter files and um, sort of match up what people are telling them with, with, um, you know, with what they actually did. Um, and so, for instance, you remember after 2016, everybody was like, you know, um, white women voted for Trump. Um, yeah. And then, and then like Pew went back and like looked at it and they said, actually, no, they didn't. <laughs> and so there's no way to know for sure, right? Like it's just all um, sort of educated guesswork that we're doing with stats. But um, no, I mean, I think the, the basic point here is, is like you're, you're right that they, do, they know that they're not going to get um, a significant number of, uh, of black voters to go. And, and go out and vote for Trump, right? Um, and and the idea is like you want to make people feel so discouraged about Joe Biden's record that they don't turn out for him. Um, and w- one of the things that was so curious to me about this choice that they made at the convention to have like five or six um, Black Republicans go up and like rip Joe Biden um, is that Joe Biden chose a Black running mate, um, and that that I think is really going to neutralize any of the stuff that they're trying to do um you'll notice that like none of these people were black women at the at the at the rnc because they know they're getting like 0.0 percent of 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 that vote um but in a broader sense i thought it was just like a lot of wasted time for them to make an appeal to voters that are never gonna that are never gonna choose them and the people the, the sort of like people who are uncomfortable with racism who um might otherwise vote for Republicans, I actually think those people are gone too and they didn't really make the right appeal to them, you know? Um, like, because it's it's not enough to have, to, to look at your screen and see Tim Scott and then be like, Republicans aren't racist. Um, you actually have to have four days of not racist programming at the RNC. <laughs> right? yeah. Like, you have yeah. Tim Scott followed by the McCloskeys um, <laughs> who are like crazy racist, you know? yeah. um, or like Tom Cotton, who's like, let's send the military in to like crush black protesters. But like, um, like people are not, you know, people, people can see through this. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's like a long running joke, right? Like um, going, going back my entire adult lifetime where, where the Republican party tries to elevate the like six, um, like black elected officials that are in their party, they're always at the RNC and given prominent spots because they know they have a problem, right? But they don't want to make the like what they want to do is they want to play games with representation um, rather than like fixing the party's policy problems and the party's coalition problems, which is that the Republican Party um, now depends really heavily on turnout from like uh, you know like white supremacist militia people. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in, in the in, in the rural areas. And so that, that's like a tricky balance that I don't think they really did that great a job of managing. No, it's, um, there's really no balance at all. And uh, the, 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 the word that I was trying to think of was, was it's a wedge issue. Uh, so if, if when yeah. you uh, get Tim Scott talking about the crime bill in 1995, it's, they're looking for a wedge to try to wedge black voters from the Democrats. And it's a legitimate issue. It's absolutely a legitimate issue to put a, a spotlight on uh, Joe Biden's support of the crime bill. The crime bill was a disaster in many yeah. ways. And Democrats got to got to confront that uh, and admit that. 
um, at the same time, what you're saying is so true. <laughs> that, like, oh, that terrible crime bill. Let's send troops into the, you know, and just mass arrest people. That's what we're going to do. Just, you can't, like, you can't in one breath be like, the crime bill was a disaster for, for black people, which it was, right? And then in the next breath, be like, anarchists, looters, vandals. He called them vandals on multiple occasions. Anarchists, looters, vandals and all these other people are like destroying our cities, you know, because, um, that's what people hear, you know, they they, um, they, most voters today don't know anything about the 1994 crime bill. Like, let's be honest, right? <laughs> like, um, it's a, it's, it was an issue in the democratic primary and maybe people have a vague sense that it was like a punitive bill, um, that ended up increasing the, the rate of incarceration in this country, which it did. Um, but, it, but that was, you know, it was like, you know, 26 years ago, right? Like, um, and, and people, when they go to the voting booth, they're not going to be like, what happened in 1994? <laughs> um, they're they're going to be like, what does this dude want to do to us today? Yeah. And today, the Republican, is, the Republican Party has made it very clear by spotlighting Tom Cotton on the last night of the convention, um, by leaning into this law and order rhetoric, by, by calling pe- peaceful protesters like arsonists and looters and, and, uh, and maniacs, right? Like, it's very clear. If you're watching the RNC, it's very clear. Um, what what these people think of peaceful protest? It's very clear um, what these people think should be done in, in in our cities, right? Which is just put the you know put the boot on back on people's necks, um, put them in prison, and and then like we don't have to deal with this problem anymore. You know they don't have any ideas, right? Like this you know the stuff where they like, they kept talking about opportunity zones and, and, and school choice um, because they thought that this this appeals to um, uh, you know more conservative black Democrats. It's just it just falls so short in this moment, you know, because and this was some, another thing that really went unacknowledged at the RNC um, was was the way that like black and Latino communities have taken the brunt of COVID-19 who, who are doing the, you know, the bulk of the grocery delivering. Um, and, and they're the you know, they're the frontline workers in the hospital. Right? Like there's something Democrats did a really good job of acknowledging and that Republicans just like ignored, you know, um, and people in these communities, they know, you know. Like they know that that this country would collapse without them, um, and yet they get they get no support, no respect from from this administration, um, and there was no effort to appeal to them whatsoever. Um, yeah. So you know, if, if anything, uh, the display yesterday or Thursday, the final day, uh, where Trump gave his speech at the White House, and there was no attempt to have social distancing, wear masks, all, all protocol went out the window. Uh, as they did, like they were a declaration that, all right, it's over. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. even real anyway. And and uh, you know, I think that's the same mistake that they made in Tulsa in June, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when they, you know, Trump decided to hold this big rally and like nobody came. Um, and whether people came or they didn't, you know, whether like the, you know the, the zealots showed up to Tulsa or not, the message that was sent to the rest of the country was like you know, they thought they were projecting normalcy. You know, they were like, if we just show people unmasked in an arena, people will like forget about COVID and the way we screwed it up. Um, but the real message that you're sending people is like, oh, um, so you're still like basically stuck in your house and like your kid's not a back in daycare and not back at school. But all these, all these like rich yahoos can like gather on the, on the White House lawn um, with, with no masks and like shouting, you know? Um, and they're like pathetic attempts to like get a USA chant going. Uh, during Mike Pence's speech or whatever, 
Um, if you if you if you care about the coronavirus, and a lot of Republicans do care about the coronavirus, not as many as, as, as should care about it, but some do. You know, and they see like people leading chants, unmasked, sitting right next to each other. Um, the, the 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 message that the American people receive is not, um, oh wow, everything's like back to normal, right? It's like no, there's a 9/11 every three days, um, and these idiots are like gathering like hundreds of people together in the capital city of our country, um, and, and and like having them like transmit the disease to each other. Like already like multiple people from the RNC have tested positive for COVID. Um, and so, like, somebody will die. Like, somebody that went to the RNC will die, you know. Um, and that, that story has not broke yet because it hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. Well, it happened in Tulsa with Herman Cain. Yeah, they killed and Herman They yeah. killed Herman Cain. And Herman when it was all said and done, I think I may have said this already, but when it was all said and done, all I could say was, you can't prove that he got, he got it in Tulsa. Which right. is, uh, I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah, evidence, you know? Not evidence of absence. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. He totally uh, got it. Right? We, we all know that. And there's like, you saw, we already seen these clips of like Rudy Giuliani like mopping his head, like at, you know last night, like looking yeah. over kid and, and like he had a fever, and they like touched the woman next to him. Um, it's like a contact tracer's dream. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there's a level of insanity uh, on the part of the Republican Party, and um, all right. Now, uh, the culminating question, uh, will it work? And when I say it, I mean the appeals to fear, the appeals uh, uh, to racism, uh, trying to scare the hell out of white women in the suburbs uh, into thinking that uh, Donald Trump, they don't vote for Donald Trump, the life as they know it will be ruined. And so they need Donald Trump to protect them. That's the message. That's what it seems like they think they can win over uh, voters in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, because apparently that those are the only three states that, that matter, David. Uh, maybe New Hampshire, you know, some of the states that Hillary barely won. We've talked about them, Minnesota, yeah, Minnesota. Nevada. Uh, so do you think it will work? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, I will say a caveat. You know, I watched the 2016 RNC, um, and I was like, surely... <laughs> surely this like like this sick and diseased spectacle of hatred you know, <laughs> will turn off enough people that will cruise to victory you know and so the, the, the sort of naivete about that is gone from from my soul and I, I don't think necessarily that the RNC like turned off people um, in, in large numbers who, who otherwise would have voted Republican like I don't think it's really going to hurt them per se um, but I, but I do think that the, the, the number of people um, who think that, like you know, a couple of nights of unrest in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, is going to ruin their lives, I think those people are already in the fold, you know. Um, and I think one of the big sort of misunderstandings or, or some misconceptions inside the Trump campaign um, is about the, like the composition of the people that they're trying to scare. Um, and so it's like. There, you know, he, he's tweeting out the stuff about like housewives and like your suburban lifestyle dream, and um, the, the, the real assumption underlying all of this stuff is that the suburbs where the where, you know where the election may very well be decided are comprised exclusively of like you know white people um, who are scared of, of urban unrest. You know, and I don't think that that's the case anymore. I think that like statistically, in most places, the suburbs are full of people who are like sickened by the shooting of Jacob Blake that caused the unrest in, in Kenosha. Um, you, you know, I don't want to put a number on it, but I think that 
um, I think that more people are horrified by the initial act of violence toward toward this uh, innocent person than they are worried about the aftermath uh, of, of, of unrest. I mean, even here in Chicago, right? Like there, there've been some unpleasant things happening in Chicago here, right? But like, I don't think it's moved the numbers um, in the city for, for Trump. I don't think it's moved the numbers in the suburbs for Trump. I think people understand um, that there's like years and years and years of, of frustration being layered on top of six months of, of, of quarantine and, and suffering that's been worse in, 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 um, in these communities. Um, and so I think it's a, I think it's a hollow appeal. Um, I think it's, uh, it's not borne out in the data that we have where like, you know, Black Lives Matter has like a, you know, a net positive approval rating um, nationwide. The only, the only way I can, ex- you know, I can explain this is two things. You know, one, they think maybe they could win if they really, if they really goose the turnout in these like super white rural areas that are distressed where people maybe didn't even vote in 2016. But maybe they come out for Trump, and, they, and, they, and there's enough of them that they flip, you know, that they keep Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan. Um, the other explanation is that they have nothing else to run on right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the country is like objectively in shambles. Um, and you know, you got like Mike Pence going out there and being like, "We created nine million jobs in the last three months," and it's like, dude, you're not fooling anybody. You know what I mean? Like, like people know, like people know that we've lost 22 million jobs um, since the pandemic started. People know that those jobs are are are, are tenuous. Um, because we don't have the virus under control and people are still not really able or willing to go to restaurants and movie theaters and, and all these things that would, that would, that would bring the economy back. We know we don't have those things under control because we made all these terrible decisions months and months ago. And, and the president was the driving force behind those decisions. And so this thing where, where they're like, uh, we, you know, record, record numbers of jobs created in the last few months. It's like, if you're not, you know, if you're not a cult member, um, you, you're not buying this stuff. Um, and so in a, in a very real sense, they don't have anything to run on, you know, yeah. like the, like the, the, the 2016 or the, the inaugural speech was I'm going to end American carnage. Um, and here you have like, we're going to have 250,000 people dead by election day. Um, you know, we've got a lot of unrest that the president is doing absolutely nothing, um, to, to address other than stoking, um, our divisions and stoking the hatred and the fear. Um, and so, you know, uh, I know a lot of people are like worried, um, that the law and order rhetoric could win the day or like the unrest in Kenosha is going to flip Wisconsin um, or that at the end of the day, people are going to, are going to be too scared to vote for Joe Biden. And I, I just don't think that we really have any um, polling data that's, that supports those fears. Like um, if anything, frankly, today, it's like the 538 polling average nationally is, is the highest it's been since June for Biden. Um, and it's, you know, we got to wait a few days for the, for the, you know, whatever bounce that Trump might get out of this convention to, to roll in. Um, but I'd see, I'd be surprised, be like extremely surprised if it was more than a point or two in his direction. Um, and political scientists are pretty unified on this. <laughs> but I, I know we just spent an hour talking about it, but the, none of this actually matters. <laughs> yeah. Conventions are not super important in terms of the outcome of the November election, which is based more on. Um, what's happening in the country and, and, and voters' uh, perceptions of the candidates rather than anything that happens at these conventions. So, I, frankly, I think that they just wasted four days um, uh, and, 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 if anything, um, gave people that were, were on the fence more reason to be skeptical about whether they are above the board and, and not racist and not crazy. That's, that's uh, my feeling. But if I that is as good as... <laughs> That's as good a spot as uh, as ever to to leave it because it's a little bit of an optimistic uh, edge uh, on things. Uh, I was feeling a little gloomy 
uh, in the aftermath of the Republican convention. And I'll say this, David, it's a generational difference. I came of age, the the big election of my lifetime was 1983, mm-hmm. uh, Harold Washington was elected mayor and I've seen what a backlash can do. And so that, that like shapes, you know, it's like my parents' generation, they were shaped by the uh, depression and you can't shake it. It's just like in you, you know what I mean? And you're two generations behind me and you just don't, I didn't live through that. So, you know what I'm saying? I got a different I I am really hoping you're right and that I can finally take 1983 and throw it away. You know what I'm saying? No, um, I mean, I hear that. Like, it's, you know, my my parents were the, you know, they grew up in the aftermath of depression and they still take, like, you know, one ounce of, like, leftover eggs and they put it in a Tupperware <laughs> container, you know, like, things like that, which is smart. It's, like, a smart thing to do, but it's, like, I don't do that, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of experiences can really shape how you see and, and view the world, and I think a lot of people um, grew up in the aftermath of 1968, too, where, oh, yeah. you know, where the law and order appeal from Richard Nixon worked, you know? I mean, I will point out it was an extremely close election in 68. Like, it didn't work that well, Um uh, but it but it worked well enough for him to win, um, and, and you got eighty eight, you know, with Willie Horton, and so there's there's like a there's a real feeling out there that like these appeals to law and order and this like coded racist rhetoric around um, crime and policing is going to deliver the White House back to them, and I I don't I think the country has changed enough that that's not that's not really going to work, you know. I I hope you're right, and I will say this: uh, baby boomers cling to these myths. And, uh, and I'm now going to throw all these baby boomers under the bus with what I'm about to say. In 2016, I, if I had a nickel for every baby boomer who told me, I can't vote for Bernie, I'm going to vote for Hillary because there's no way Bernie can beat Trump. <laughs> I'm like, and I still voted for Bernie, man. I was proud of that. But that those baby boomers, they're so scared, you know? Don't get me started, yeah. David. So I'm going to uh, repress my inner baby boomer, and I'm saying I'm going with David Ferris. I think it, I'm going to say it's not going to work. So, uh that's yeah, good... I honestly think the RNC did not help them. I mean, I think that there's there's a limited amount of help that they could have gotten from it, even if they had done it perfectly. But that the central task of the RNC was to pre- was to present a face of like Republican normalcy to the country, and that they failed to do that. Yes, I agree with that. They do that. They you know they might not have made things worse for them. So I don't th- I don't know how things could possibly get worse, given the realities of our our our, our politics right now. Um, but you know, you're down nine points going in. Uh, I think they're down nine points coming out. Um, and so something else is going to have to change for them. And they didn't, you know, they didn't help themselves with this convention. And I'm, I'm pretty, pretty solid on that. All right. That's David Farish, Roosevelt university, political science professor, author of the kids are all left, uh, and, uh, time to fight dirty. Uh, David, take care of yourself. We'll bring you back on next month. See what the world looks like. All right. I can't wait, Ben. I'm sure that, uh, everything will be totally normal and fine. (laughs) (laughs) The pandemic will be gone. Oh my God. All right. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.